Welcome to Imagine With Us podcast with Rabbi Michael Lerner and Kat Savas. In this episode, we will talk about impeachment, failure to convict, unity, the concept of unity, and more. I'm going to start by talking about my upset, I guess that's the calmest way to say it, about what happened in the Senate trial, and in particular Mitch McConnell's vote to acquit and then statement right after that actually holding Trump responsible for what happened and deciding that he's not going to convict him because of a technicality. And that technicality, according to McConnell, was because he's no longer president. But as I'm sure all of you know, McConnell had a choice to call the Senate back into session to conduct the trial while Trump was still in office, and he neglected to do that. So it's just incredibly disingenuous, to say the least. But of course, watching McConnell over the last what, 12 years, no one, none of us should be surprised. During Obama's administration, as you probably remember, refused to allow hearings on Obama's nomination to the Supreme Court. And then because there supposedly wasn't enough time and we were at the end of the session. And yet, during Trump's administration, of course, he rushed through Trump's Supreme Court nominee. So we now have a conservative Supreme Court that we wouldn't have had had he allowed Obama's nomination to go through. Needless to say, this is incredibly distressing and disturbing, but shouldn't be surprising to any of us. And so it leaves me wondering, and maybe you as well, Michael, about this call that Biden had to unity, right? And so many people, understandably on the left, are saying there's no unity without accountability. We can't have unity with fascists or with people who refuse to convict a president for clearly inciting riots and rioters to break down the doors of the Capitol and threaten their colleagues' lives. One of the things that we've spoken about was this idea that what we should be talking about when we're calling for unity is putting forth policies and Biden being a president for all the people in an effort to build policies and programs that meet the actual needs of people and not only their material needs, but as we've spoken about so many times, their psycho and spiritual, their psycho spiritual needs, that we need a president and a party and a left that speaks to this pain in people's lives and also puts forth policies that are truly transformative and radical. It's really quite hard to fathom how, after watching the evidence that the House prosecutors brilliantly presented, to fathom how Republican senators, other than the seven who voted to convict, could vote to acquit. The evidence was overwhelming, and they were there at the time that it happened. They were witnesses to the event. They experienced it. They then saw footage that had never been seen before that was harrowing in terms of how close the insurgents were to Pence. And, and then I've also heard testimony or, or statements, excuse me, of 
other members of Congress speaking on the news and in other places about how close they were. Senator Patty Murray from Washington State was telling the story of her and her husband in her office, unsure if the office door was locked, and her husband has one foot up against the door and she's hearing the insurgents pounding and pounding on the door saying, pull out the map, where are they? We need to find them. And they're looking at each other in horror, wondering if his foot will hold the door against these insurgents. And But by pure luck, they didn't break that door down and kill her and him. These senators knew this and saw this and, and they know that police officers were assaulted and killed that they've lost eyes and fingers. A couple have killed themselves as a result of the trauma, and these senators just turned their back. The failure to convict Trump emboldens Trump, other members of the Republican Party who align with Trump, which it appears to be 43 members of the Senate and over 100 some odd members of the House, to continue to put forth conspiracy theories and lies about elections, to continue to try to undermine free and fair elections, and to promote who are acting in a fascistic manner. I just read in the paper today that Senator Graham spoke to Trump after the Senate acquitted, and he said that he was going to go down to Florida and have a nice day golfing with him to talk about how to rebuild the Republican Party for the 2020 elections. Graham said to him, Mr. President, we need the MAGA movement for 2022. So to be clear, this is very dangerous times. If they are able to build up this movement and strengthen this movement, then we are looking at some really dangerous and threatening behaviors that we've seen in Michigan, in the Capitol, and in state capitals around the country. In addition to the Trump supporters on the streets, and we also have Trump supporters in governments that are trying now in 28 states, I believe, they have introduced legislation to undermine voting access and voting rights for people in those states. And that's going to be a very powerful way to ensure that we do not have free and fair elections. So there's a lot of work that we need to do in order to build the kind of movement we need to withstand these attacks and to put forth the kind of policies and visionary strategies that those of us on the left and those of us in progressive movements truly need and want and that our country needs. Yeah, it's really troublesome and scary that these people who have been engaged in uh, what they would themselves have called lawless behavior and demanded law and order had it been done by anybody besides themselves, are now without a moment of uh, real shame. And I wish somebody had just said to them, have you no shame <laughs> you know, that, you, that you could do this, that you could watch this, that you could see your fellow uh, legislators and the uh, members of the Congress being subject to a group of people who wanted to hang them, who wanted to kill them, or at least to pick out their favorite, their enemies, including Pence, the vice president, because at that point, Pence wasn't obeying the attempt that was being asked of him by Trump to nullify the vote entirely. 
even though there was, of course, no basis in law or in the Constitution for the vice, vice president being able to do that. So there was no outrage. There was no sense of illegality. And then to see the disgusting behavior of McConnell voting to acquit and then as soon as the vote is over, turning around and saying, oh, and by the way, he was guilty of everything that they were saying. Now, what was going on in that guy's head? Well, it seems obvious that what was going on was he's a smart strategist for the Republicans, and he has seen and read the reports that the Republicans have lost hundreds of thousands of registered, registered Republicans in the past week, a few weeks, and that the big money uh, operations of major corporations are letting it be known that many of them may not want to put any more money into the Republican Party, which they've been doing for decades. He plays both sides, right? I'll vote to acquit him as though he's done nothing wrong, and then I'll tell everybody that what he's done wrong, but he doesn't tell them before the vote. He doesn't tell his fellow colleagues, whom at every other vote, he's always had the use of his a position of power as the majority leader to push people in a particular direction. But in this case, he keeps his mouth shut until it's too late to change the votes, and then he speaks up about how disgusting the behavior was. Well, okay, that's one level of politics that generally we like to stay away from, because the truth of the matter is that there's been hypocrisy on the Democratic Party side, too, at various points. Nothing as close to as outrageous as this. <laughs> but nevertheless, yeah, plenty of lies. The whole way we got into the war in Vietnam, full of lies and reported for years and years and years, the Democratic Party administration was lying to the public, and then the Republicans got into, into control with Nixon, and they continued to lie. <laughs> they continued to lie to the republic. So this is not a brand new or exclusively Republican issue. Nevertheless, I think it's a mistake for us to focus all our upset at the political partisans on either side, or to look at this simply as an issue of some evil people in the Senate or evil people in the surrounding and supporting Trump. We have a real problem in our country people have been deeply upset about government for a long time. And that upset is based in part on a deflection onto government of the pain that they actually are experiencing in their daily life. In a capitalist society in which people spend all day in a world of work, in which people are taught over and over and over again, hey, everybody's out for themselves. You better look out for yourself. Everybody is selfish. Everybody's materialistic. That's why we can't change anything in this world because all we'll do is repeat what other countries have had of revolutions in which other bad people got into power. So better fit in, sit with this reality, go home with the reality of selfishness and materialism, protect yourselves against your other people around you, Abraham Joshua Heschel once uh, uh, said that the real saying that fits American society is suspect your neighbor as yourself instead of love your neighbor as yourself. He said, said that's what's going on. People are so distrustful of other people and yet living that way 
causes in, a tremendous amount of internal distress. It also causes a tremendous amount of fear of other people. And when people on the right who responded to Trump said, yeah, we want our country back, what they were talking about was something that was not totally legitimate to want, namely a society in which they felt recognized, included, part of it. Now, it is true that one stream of that meant when white people ran everything. And that, of course, is illegitimate. Or when we were only living in small little towns. Okay, that wasn't illegitimate, but it's just not going to happen again, at least for the majority of Americans. But people wanted some sense of recognition, some sense of being cared for. And that was something that the Democrats and the liberal and progressive world have never put forward at the center of what they are uh, about. What they continue to put forward, even now under Biden, I, I wish him success, and I hope all the programs that he's come up with actually get actualized. But they are all, or almost all of them, about repairing the material losses that people have had through the pandemic. They are not about trying to articulate and support an ethos of caring. We at Tikkun and the Network of Spiritual Progressives have been putting forward the vision of what we call the caring society, caring for each other and caring for the earth. That vision is critical. That way of thinking about politics, that politics should be about a way of recreating an ethos of caring, an ethos of generosity. But unfortunately, that runs us right up against the capitalist ethos which is reinforced, as I say, every day in the world of work and reinforced by the media, which is uh, by and large owned and controlled by the same people who own and control the corporations. And so when people hear this, they think it's unlikely or unrealistic. I want to jump in here with a quote of Bell Hooks that is very much in alignment with our work and your teachings and the vision of what we want. And it speaks to a lot of what we talk about in particular in terms of shifting this ethos of the capitalist worldview, competitive marketplace ethos to a ethos of caring and love and also moving from this worldview of domination and fear to a worldview of love and care. And so she writes, and now I quote, without an ethic of love shaping the direction of our political vision, and our radical aspirations we are often seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to systems of domination. Many of us are motivated to move against domination solely when we feel our self-interest directly threatened. Often then the longing is not for a collective transformation of society, an end to politics of domination, but rather simply for an end to what we feel is hurting us. This is why we desperately need an ethic of love to intervene in our self-centered longing for change. Love as the practice of freedom, bell hooks. And let me just say one thing and then I'll invite you to jump back in. And I wanna see that what she's speaking to here is also, she's saying that we, we will fight for ourselves 
will fight to challenge domination systems or oppressive systems when it's for ourselves or let's say our, our small community, our local community, the people that we see like ourselves. But that it doesn't tend to infuse creating a whole society, shifting the entire ethos of the society. And part of that is because of the ethos of the competitive capitalist marketplace, which says take care of self. And so she's speaking to both of these, even though what she's really highlighting here is this domination paradigm versus a love paradigm. But the reason we get stuck and the reason why we often work on small incremental changes that'll make our individual lives better or those that we love or that we see to be like us is also connected to the ethos of the capitalist marketplace, which tells us to work on individual change, lift yourself up by the bootstraps, fix your problem. And this is the downside or tricky side of identity politics, because identity politics, on the one hand, is very important for giving people a sense of community with their identity, whether that's as African-Americans or Native Americans or various peoples of color or gays and lesbians or women or Jews or whatever your particular community is, it can be a very wonderful thing for people and a support for people. And part of the reason why white nationalism has appealed to a variety of people who don't fit into any of those categories is because they too want a place of where they are recognized and cared for. But the downside, and, we're, and of course we've seen that downside in the Trump years become very, very exaggerated and clear, is that affirming of your own particular identity can then be used as a way to beat down anybody else's identity and to see it as a zero-sum game in which only my identity group is the one that deserves to be cared for. And that is what was so pernicious and still is so pernicious about making America great again. Because what they meant with that is really making white people great again. In doing that, they were ready to do everything they could to put down other groups, to put down other people. And I've seen that same kind of consciousness emerge in the state of Israel. I won't go into that very much right now, but just to say it's a terrible, outrageous thing when previously oppressed group becomes an oppressor to others. And yet it's, of course, built into the structure of a society where it's a zero-sum game, where only one side can win and the other sides lose. We want to challenge all of that. We want to affirm the value of individual identity groups and at the same time insist that they, while affirming themselves, also affirm all the other groups, affirm all human beings, not just in, a, in the United States, but all over the world. We need a whole different way of looking at the world in which we see every human being as an embodiment of the sacred and treat other, every human being as such. And hence, see every grouping as filled with people who are uh, deserving of care and support. And that at times means also looking at people, for example, some of those who voted for Trump, that we're not going to put them down simply by virtue of the fact that they voted for Trump. We have to see their humanity also. But that does not mean 
that we have to support their politics or support what they're putting forward when they're putting forward things that are destructive to other groups. So this is the questionable part about when Biden promised a kind of unity and looking at being the president of all the people. It's important that he said it that way and not, I'm going to be the president of all the political parties. The political parties are made up often of groups that are simply representatives of special interests. Hopefully, the Democratic Party will move a little bit away from that, but not totally because the mainstream of the Democratic Party represents the interests of the capitalist class as much as the Republicans do. They try to offset that by trying to develop some programs that will make things better for those who have been hurt most by the free marketplace and its ethos and its way of treating people. The mainstream of the Democratic Party is run by basically trying to get the financial support and political support of the major corporations and and the wealthy people in the society. So there's a problem there. Now, I don't mean to say every Democrat is that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the core of those parties is not something that we can identify with. But the people in them, there are a lot of decent people in them, including decent people in the Democratic Party, including my friends in the, in the liberal or progressive end of that party, but also some Republicans in that party. And I think of the, those Republicans who then created the Lincoln campaign in the, during the last election. They were people with a lot of money who decided to support a Biden instead of Trump because at some point their ethical consciousness pushed them away from the disgusting behavior of Trump and his minions. Thank God they did that. And they did it because they trusted that their economic interests would be protected in a Biden administration. Although I did see one interview where one person, a couple of them said they would have supported Bernie even if he won because they could see fascist, fascism staring down at them and they want a democracy. So thank God for that, for sure. It's important for us to uplift and advocate for very strongly policies that challenge the neoliberal base of the Democratic Party and the neoliberal policies of that party so that we can truly create programs that can address the suffering of people in a society in which the gap between the 1% and the rest is so massive that people are struggling and so they're vulnerable to a demagogue charismatic demagogue like Trump. Absolutely. And when you mention fascism, we have to recognize that 2022, 2024, 2026, 2028, that fascism is on the agenda still. And when Trump talks about running again and his supporters will be out there calling for him to run again. Or Graham's going to meet with him to help him build up the MAGA party and make the Republican unite under the MAGA logo. The way to end that is not only to have a liberal Democratic Party pass economic programs that temporarily help those who are most suffering, which is all that we have on the agenda at the moment, 
We don't yet have a real transformation of the economy being put forward, an end to the vast gap between the rich and, and the rest of us. Or even Medicare for all. Or even medical <laughs> Medicare for all, right. So we don't have that on the agenda. What we are saying is, if you actually want to stop fascism from growing, you have to have a party that is about caring for everyone, that talks about love and justice together, not just economic justice, but environmental justice and justice in every sphere, but also love and caring. And, or as we say in Tikkun, that there is a hunger also from people for a sense of meaning and purpose that transcends the selfishness and materialism of the capitalist marketplace. When have we ever heard that being articulated in the liberal world? Well, the right-wingers hear that all the time in their churches, but we almost never hear that being articulated. And when you go to some of the even progressive churches, as we have tried at times, and they say to us, we don't want any politics here, as though the, the Bible wasn't itself filled with politics, the struggle for freedom against uh, Pharaoh was a huge political struggle, okay? And when Jesus was overturning the money changers outside the temple in Jerusalem, that was a, a tremendous political act. It's time that those who are saying we don't want any politics in our spiritual life had better recognize that uh, if they don't begin to talk about the need for s uh, some kind of transformation in our society that enhances people's capacity to find meaning in their work and not working just to manifest money for themselves or mostly money for the owners of the corporations, that the fascists will be back in storm in either in 22, 24, 26, 28. In this decade, we are going to face a probably more sophisticated form of fascism than we've had before. So we have plenty to worry about, and our marching orders are big. It's a big transformation <laughs> that is needed, and that's what we are trying to work on in the Network of Spiritual Progressives and in Tikkun Magazine. Yeah, so I want to end kind of drawing on bell hooks and also our work that to do this, we need an ethic of love that both but inspires and instills within us the capacity to love the stranger as an individual. And through that love, through that act of love, fight for transformation of the systems and structures of our society for the benefit of all, not only when we feel pain and suffering from them, but when we see the stranger, the one we should love suffering, that we also want to fight for changes for them as well. And so that we move from this struggle because we feel pain to a struggle because all of us actually are in pain in a system in which we all are experiencing domination and power over. And I think in the next session or two, we should talk a little bit more about the psychodynamics of that pain and how it happens and how it gets internalized. Sounds great. Thank you for joining us. Please follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please share this with your friends and invite them to follow us as well. You can become engaged with our work and learn more about us at tikkun, T-I-K-K-U-N dot org and spiritualprogressives.org. And we'd love to hear from you. So to reach us, you can email me, Kat, C-A-T, 
at spiritualprogressives.org with the subject heading, Imagine With Us. You can buy Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, at tikkun.org slash revlove. And special thanks goes out to Emma's Revolution for their amazing music. You can hear more of their music at emmasrevolution.com, and you can follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.